for all of the organizations that I work with, when they're wanting me to work with their women, I am very clear that I want to also work at the systemic organizational level because this isn't about fixing the women, making the women into some kind of male mode. This is about helping the women navigate the system as is, whilst also helping the system to change the processes, the procedures, and making people aware of what we get from society and, and how that shapes our view of women in leadership positions. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Every year, the ritual starts. Consulting, accounting, and law firms welcome a new intake of promising young employees. In that crop, of every 10 people, five are women. Yet at the top of those firms, only two of every 10 partners are women. Men who enter, studies show, are three times more likely to rise to partner than their female peers. How do we increase the number of women partners? I've invited today's guest, Alison Temperley, founder and managing partner at ATD Partners in the UK, because she has coached and trained thousands of women and men focused on this challenge in professional service firms, long before the topic gained prominence. Today, we're going to discuss her fantastically practical book, I Cannot Say How Practical It Is, Inside Knowledge, How Women Can Thrive in Professional Service Firms. At heart, It's about how to proactively take charge of managing your career, stepping into your power, and building influence. Allison is a chartered accountant. Prior to leading ATD, she headed up career development for tax and legal for PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And she designed and led the award-winning women's leadership program at Cranfeld Business School in the UK. Allison, your book is a guide for everyone, I would say not just women in professional service firms, a guide that everyone should have. So I'm really excited to be able to discuss your top insights. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you very much, Michael. I would love for you to just share one thing about you <laughs> as we kick off that we can't find about, out about you on the internet. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you two, actually, Michael. There we go. Two for the price of one. The first is how much I cringe when you or anybody else talks about, you know, it's been a stellar career and things like that. And I think it's important to say that because I think there is something quite difficult about taking compliments. Mm. And I suspect that women are even worse than, I think it's a human thing, but I think women are possibly even worse than men. We tend to brush it off or, or minimize it. So I'm doing my best sitting here not to cringe or to brush it off or to to minimize it. But if you want one thing that that isn't known, I I think I'm one I think I'm the well I'm certainly the only person I know who became a chartered accountant, so the equivalent of a CPA in the states as a rebellion against my family. I I come from a family of of doctors and teachers and academics. And I think there was a a stage where they were absolutely horrified that I was going to take the corporate dollar and and go off and do that. So most people tell the story of how their, their family wanted them to become an accountant. Mine really didn't, but I did. So there's a notch of, of rebellion in there. And I think all of us can in some ways, thank you for making that choice. Choice is, is, is a big theme that comes up in your book. 
So, Allison, I wanted to design this interview. We're basically going to look at two parts. One is to take top insights from your book and share those top strategies. And then to spend the second half looking beyond so, some, some deeper questions that maybe aren't explicitly addressed in the book, but I know that you face or are probably thinking about all the time in your work and with your clients. Again, your book is focused on helping women thrive in professional service firms. You distill research, learning from coaching thousands of, of individuals and the feedback that you get and, and their work. The book focuses, and we're going to focus our discussion on what holds women back and what they can do about it, what I call kind of here actively managing our careers, um, even if some of those things feel uncomfortable. And because you call this out very explicitly at the beginning of your book, this is not to minimize the firm's or even society's role or overlook an uneven playing field or not saying that all women want to get to partner. And this is not about, quote unquote, fixing women. Uh, I love this expression in your book. This is about flexing our style, not twisting us out of shape. Anything you want to add on this point? No, I think it's a really important point. Thinking about who the audience was for the book, it seemed to me that looking at what we as individuals can do to navigate the system as is was probably the right place to start. But I think your point is very well made. In terms of women as leaders, there are things that we can do. There are things that the organisations that we work within can do. And there are things that we need from society. And the book focuses on the first. My work focuses on the first and the second. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody within society has a role to play in how women and particularly women leaders are seen at a societal level. But for all of the organizations that I work with, when they're wanting me to work with their women, I am very clear that I want to also work at the systemic organizational level because this isn't about fixing the women making the women into some kind of male mode. This is about helping the women navigate the system as is, whilst also helping the system to change the processes, the procedures, and making people aware of what we get from society and, and how that shapes our view of women in leadership positions. As you mentioned at the end of the book, uh, and I'm curious if you're already working on it, that companion book that looks at how we address things at the leadership level and what organizations need to do. Is that is that in the works? It's in my head, I have to say, Michael. It hasn't actually hit a page yet. But, Please get um... it on paper. Please get it on paper because I know that is a big part of what you do. This book is, yeah. is very much, as you said, focused on what women themselves in an imperfect system can do in their situation. And, and you call out several things here, kind of being aware, uh, kind of this consciousness of how in some situations individuals may be unwittingly undercutting themselves or not paying attention to things in the context or, or what is being awarded or rewarded to provide more choice or strategies, um, things that they may be able to be doing to, to better help themselves in pursuit of their goals. If we were to cut right to the chase, what would you say is the single biggest thing women tend to overlook or fail to do uh, to their detriment? I think, and it actually allies with something that organizations do that doesn't help. Uh, I think the single biggest thing I would say is that women come into professional service firms, but actually into a number of, of organizations. And having been very successful at school and university, arrive at the workplace and think that working really hard and doing a really good job is enough. And of course, it's necessary, but it's absolutely not sufficient. And on the other side of that, if I'm asking women to step forward and, and talk about the things that they do, I also want organizations to sponsor women better. Mm. And I'm sure we'll come on and talk about that. But I see too many women working incredibly hard, effectively in a corner, without the wider organization really taking cognizance of what they're contributing. Yeah, I think these are really important points. And 
I just want to also call out here, you could substitute in what you just said, every time you've mentioned woman or female, you could substitute underrepresented group. I see this with a lot of the Asians uh, that I coach who are in the States or in Europe. I see this also with introverted men who maybe come from a technical background. So I think this has really wide applicability and why I wanted to, to, to call that out. So the single biggest thing, and certainly this is getting tons of attention. I mean, the topic of DEI has obviously been around, but it's gained a lot of currency now in the States. Has any anything around this single biggest thing changed? You, I mean, you've been working in this area now for, for decades, but would you say anything's changed? I think at an organizational level, things have changed. And I think at a societal level, things have, have changed. There is an awful lot more emphasis. Um, as you say, I came to this area having been a woman in a professional service firm. And, and a professional service firms are, they, they, they have a particular peculiarity in that they sell the skills of their people. And they all talk about the fact that they're meritocracies. And the stats that you gave at the front of this, of this talk really show that there's something weird going on. I mean, nobody now would suggest that that women are less intelligent and therefore are not getting to the top. Now, 100 years ago, actually, they might have argued that. No, nobody would argue that now. Right. But I think that I'm seeing more and more organizations being interested in this and, and diversity more broadly. And I think over the 30 years, that has been a fantastic development, that it's, if you like, that's that um, the simplistic view of women are, are underrepresented, so something is happening to them, has broadened out to there are a number of parts of the organization, or parts of our, our culture, parts of our society that are not sufficiently represented. And what's happening that we're not seeing them come to the top in the numbers that we would expect? Yeah. So there's this old saying, Alison, right? That, uh, you know, if you're climbing the ladder, look at the ladder, like what it's leaned against because if you get to the top and you don't like what's there you know you'll have spent a lot of time doing that and i i want to call this out is something you also raise in the book kind of looking at the context or why do you want to be ambitious and looking at those at the top maybe we have a broken model right most of the partnerships uh, professional service firms work on a very capitalist model you know where the partners have certain roles, they must work in certain ways. And a lot of people look at that, and you mentioned this in the book, that that's not what they want, right? The amount of work, pressure, trade-offs that may come with other things that they want to do in life. But you also challenge that. I'd love for you to talk about this because you do raise this point in something that you know I look at with power of, there are certain advantages that come with positional power status, control of resources, et cetera, that people may overlook. When you encourage people to, to, to challenge what the existing model looks like, what are you trying to say there? I think, and this is where, as an accountant, I'm coming back on this. So if you like, my original training is coming back into this, that firms, and, I, and here I am going to talk about professional service firms, but it, it applies to all kinds of organizations, want to take the very best of their people, of the people available. And as you say, 50-50 coming in at the bottom at the sort of graduate end. What is going on in the organization that those are not getting to the top? And if they don't feel that getting to the top is attractive, what is going on there that's not attractive? And I look, again, I'm, I'm going to I particularly go in on professional service firms. You know, they were designed in the last century, if not the century before, when society was quite different and there was always a spouse at home looking after the children and the home. Things are different now. But I think one of the things that I feel very passionately about at the moment is that we are asking possibly the generation below me to think about how work can be different and how they want to do it differently. And I hear again and again from partners within professional service firms, existing leaders, who say that Often men come to them and say, look, I'm not happy with the way things are. This is the way I think I would like to change it. And if the answer is no, we can't change it, then they leave and that's fine. But at least the firm has a chance to change things. Whereas women often 
assume that things can't be changed and then leave mm. um, and have already handed in their notice by the time any discussion is had. So I think there is a, I, I'm passing on the challenge to the generation below me to say, how do you think it should be done differently? How do you want it to be different? I think they may find that they're pushing on a bit of an open door because the existing leaders don't know what it is that needs to be done. They came in in a cookie cutter way of what a partnership is and what a partner is involved or what invo is involved in being a partner. I feel that we need to recalibrate that, redesign that, and that needs to come from those people in their 30s who are pushing for leadership. And they need to be telling how they can manage their lives, their careers in a way that suits them, because it has to change. Yeah, it does have to change. And so those pieces that you just mentioned, as well as, you know, those who rise to partner certainly have leeway in, in terms of how they create things, where they focus or create change within their own organization. So I'm seeing that in other sectors uh, with leaders I, I look at, but I wanted to bring up that point because I think it's, it's quite important. We talked about some of the, the, the strategies and you highlighted when you kind of boiled it down to one thing. If we look, choose two or three drivers, a couple that I really picked up and thought were uh, very important from your book, is there an area that women underinvest in that they should really focus on? I think it goes back to the, the same point, actually, mm -hmm. is that under-investing in their network. Okay. The network who talks for you. There's a, a nice quote from Sheryl Sandberg who talks about the fact if you, if you describe somebody as an ambitious man, that is a compliment. If you describe somebody as an ambitious woman, that is often an insult. Mm. And so we need support around us to talk about how good we are, to talk about the things that we have done. And I think we need to get over our concern about compliments mm. and get out there and talk about what we're doing. I think I describe in the book, there are, there are two strategies, which often I see people, particularly women, thinking is a binary decision. There's either the mouse of working really hard in the corner and expecting other people to have the time and the energy to sort of look over your shoulder and see what you're doing versus the peacock who kind of does the jazz hands in the middle of the room. And um, women get particularly criticized if we try and do that. So that's not a good, um, most mostly is not a good strategy for us. So we need to find sponsors. We need to find supporters out there who can talk about us. And we need to give them the information so that they have that information. If you think about it, any career, um, Career advancement will happen because of conversations where you're not there. They will happen in rooms where you're being discussed. And I just want to make sure that, and this applies for other minority groups, that that discussion is based on the current truth, mm. uh, not old truths or assumptions, but that they have the information to make good decisions. Yeah, this point around having the information you know, the relevant information teed up for them so they can make decisions. Two points that I'd love to dive in a little more deeply. You brought up networking mm -hmm. and you brought up communications. And I think your book is excellent on, on these two points. On the networking and, again, the importance of sponsors, particularly in the process at a professional service firm where you get nominated, someone puts you forward, is speaking about you. You mention in the book that women are great at making the connections. They're, they're actually very good at networking, mm. but not so good at using them. And maybe it's our word choice here. Like as soon as we say using, it's you're using someone else for some selfish purpose. But therein does lie this important part, right? If you've got a great network and people who think about you, care about you, how do you activate them or how do you use them? Can you share any point here on and how women could better use their connections, that piece? Well, I suppose there's a couple of things there. One is going back to your point about communication. So making sure that the people in your network do know what it is that you've done mm. and do know what it is that you want. I think both of those things are, 
are really important. I'm a great fan if you're slightly concerned that you're moving on that spectrum I talked about between mouse and peacock, you're moving too much towards the peacock, to use your network to go and ask for advice. I think mm. advice is a wonderful th tool to use. There's, a, there's an element of flattery to the person that you're asking advice. But I always think, you know, I'm wanting to progress through this firm or I'm wanting to get a promotion. What is your advice? Who should I talk to? Engaging your network in there so that they know what it is that you're doing. They're having a, if you like, an adult to adult conversation with you about where it is you want to go and what it is that you want to do. Now, that does take a bit of prep. So it's not that that's not necessarily the coffee station conversation, but um, and we can come back to the coffee station conversation if we want to. But the the going in and talking to people now for women, that's often um, that can be slightly uncomfortable. But most organizations have appraisals, whether that be every year, every twice a year. And my plea to the women that I coach is always prepare for that, prepare for it properly and think about what you want to get out of it. It's not a conversation which, which should be your boss telling you what they think of you. You should be a very active part of that appraisal conversation. But that does take preparation. It takes getting feedback before the, the conversation so you've got a view of what other people think of you. But it also takes prep as to what you want to what you want to get and what you want your boss to do as a result of that conversation. Is it putting you forward for something? Is it giving you a different kind of work? But you need to drive that and think about it beforehand. So setting and taking charge of the agenda of, of what, you, what you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having sat the other side of, of the table, if you like, in, in uh, meetings, appraisal meetings, it makes such a difference if the person in front of me has set the agenda and knows what they want to talk about. It's so much easier. I would always say send the agenda a couple of days in advance, give the person a chance to, to really prep. But it also gives a very clear signal that you're interested in this and this is important to you. And it doesn't allow people to make any kind of assumptions about your ambition uh, or where you want to get to. It's just clarity in the communication. I, I see too often assumptions, often benign assumptions, but assumptions are made on both sides. What is possible, what she wants, and just making sure that, that both sides have clarity there. Very important. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. You mentioned as you were responding to that, there's these planned ones, but then there are these coffee table conversations. It sounded like something was there that you wanted to mention. Well, it, I, so often, and I've come across this around the world, so this isn't just a British thing, but there'll be culturally slightly different versions of this. But you meet somebody at the coffee station and there's somebody that you know, so this isn't an introducing yourself to them. But the, the conversation goes, you know, hi, Michael, how are you? And and you would respond, I'm fine. How are you, Alison? And there's a there's two parts to that. There's the I'm fine or I'm busy or I'm good or I'm stressed, you know, whatever that might be. And then the other part, which is turning it back to me. And if that was our conversation, and I'm sorry to to pin it on you, Michael, but I'll give you a, a, version, a different version in a moment. Effectively, what you've done is you've given me a completely blank piece of paper. Yep. I, I know nothing other than you're fine. And if somebody later on in the day asked, you know, how's Michael? The answer would be, he's fine. And, and I can't pass anything on. I'm not a great fan of elevator pitches. I'm not quite sure when one would use an elevator pitch. And if one did use it in an elevator, I think people would look at you as if you were slightly odd. But what I would want to do between those two elements that that are normally there in that coffee station conversation is to add a sentence in the middle. And it needs to be brief because people are not, if you're asking me, hi, Alison, how are you by the coffee machine? You really don't want an elevator pitch. It needs to be just one sentence. 
it needs to be enthusiastic. Um, I'm a great fan of the of using the neuroscience that we have got gotten to know over the last ten years or so. And I'm I'm here. I'm picking up on what we call mirror neurons. So if I'm enthusiastic about something, I will enthuse the other person. The same part of their brain will kick off. So it needs to be something they're enthusiastic about. It needs to be something that's successful. So don't associate yourself with something that's that's not going well. And it needs to give the other person a takeaway. And that's I am incredibly proud to say spells out best: brief, enthusiastic, successful with the takeaway. And so if I give you an example, if you said, you know, hi, Alison, how are you? I'd say I'm fine. I'm working on a really interesting deal with Google at the moment. How are you, Michael? And I've given you a hook there mm-hmm. that you can then say, oh, what's the deal with Google? Or when the next person talks about the deal with Google, you can say, I think Alison's working on that. And I've just slotted it into conversation. And of course, it doesn't need to be a new one every day. I remember a partner I was working with saying that when she was washing her hair every Monday morning, she thought, okay, so what's the best sentence that I just want to throw in this week? And of course, you're starting to work with Google. You are working with Google. You've just finished working with Google. All of those are possible to talk about, possibly not to the same person and certainly not in the same week, else they will think you're very odd. It's a, it's a simple but really effective way of getting people to know what it is that you're doing. I love it. So even in these very innocuous moments, I think anyone who's listened to this will never take the how you doing in the same way again, or at least if they're taking very sound advice here to think about best and how to interject that into your conversation in a way that is natural and helps. There is this piece around communication, and I wanted to call out one other piece that you mentioned that I thought was was very useful, and that's paying attention to how you frame the things that you do. Uh, there's a whole element here that you talk about framing what you say. And could you speak a little to that? Because it, it's, you talk about framing things that you do, even may seem like administrative work or what you, I think it's a British expression, organizational dusting but how you might frame that in ways that show impact, show value. Could you speak to that? Because I think it's a very important point in the way a lot of people give away their power or things that they're doing. Yeah. Can I take it in two halves? Mm -hmm. If I talk about framing more generally. So let's take the appraisal that we were talking about. And it's really easy to say, I've had the feedback that I have no impact. You know, Alison the feedback is you have no impact. I can just leave that hanging out there. And all kinds of people will make all kinds of assumptions about what that might mean. However, if it's true, you can frame it in a very positive way. Now, this does need to be true. But just expanding on that saying, I've had the feedback that actually, I I don't have much impact. I've, I've investigated that a little bit further. And it's in these particular meetings that I'm very quiet. So what I'm doing is I'm working on that with my coach or I'm working on that by getting the agenda beforehand and really thinking about what it is that I want to to say. And that is a very different story to the framing in that now it shows that I'm self-aware, I'm taking on feedback and I'm working on that. And that's a very different picture to the just letting it hang out there. So that's one kind of framing. The organizational dusting piece, I think, has a particular resonance for women, although it's not just women who who are part of this or get, get involved in this. What I mean by organizational dusting is the same way as if you walked into any meeting room in any of the uh, of the buildings that you work in, nobody notices if that room has been well dusted. But people do notice if it hasn't been well dusted. And there are certain things that go on in organizational life which are noticed if they're not well done but are not usually noticed if they are done well done. And the classic ones are things like training the juniors, making sure that morale is high, pastoral care. At a more junior level, it might be preparing the slide deck for the presentation, but not actually giving the presentation. And I think women can get caught in doing that organizational dusting, where what they do is not seen or it's not valued. And my plea is that 
the first thing to do is to identify it. What what are you doing? What's taking up your time that is not being seen? And then you need to think carefully about whether you want to do it or not. And you may want to do it because actually you really enjoy bringing on the juniors. Or you may want to do it because you think it's important for the team or the organization. And then the kind of flow chart splits, if you like. If if you do want to do it, then you need to ensure that the organization sees the value in that. And here's the accountant in me coming out. Right. You know, if you're training up the juniors, then actually there is a, there is real value in that and a financial reward, because what you're doing is pushing work down to the cheapest resource, so that you're freeing up the more expensive resource to do other things. That is a financial gain. You're also making sure that the team is sustainable in the long term. So that's if you want to do it, then talk about it in terms of its value to the organization and make sure that you may need to repeat that more than once about the the value and watch out for the words you use i'm always concerned about coordinating or organizing actually you're leading the project or you're you know just just think about those words if you don't want to do it if you don't think it if it doesn't give you joy and it's not good then maybe it's somebody else's turn to do it and don't, you know, and point out that you've been taking the notes of the meeting for the last year and perhaps somebody else should be doing it. Um, so it's taking, it's being aware of it, deciding whether you want to do it, and then either giving it its due value or passing it on to somebody else. Yeah. I think these are critical points because there is research that is not from yesterday, <laughs> has been documented a long time that more of this organizational work will tend to go to women disproportionately, and women will disproportionately say yes to it. Um, so yeah. your advice there of think twice about it, is this something that is strategic or something that you value, and then also how you frame it. Very, very, very good advice as we look at this. I, to, to shift, there is, there is more that we could be talking about your book with the strategies and insights, but I want to get into some parts that maybe aren't explicitly called out, and that, but that I know that we're both thinking about. One of them is this, when we lay out a professional service firm, you know, and it is often sometimes said, you know, the person next to you, you know, is your peer, but they're also your competitor, particularly as you're going up. And so this idea of collaboration and competition can sometimes be tricky because maybe there's two of you going up for partner and one's going to be chosen. Anything that, that you might kind of call out or share here in terms of how people can think about this? Because if you think about everyone as your competitor, you may not want to collaborate, which is needed, or you're leery of sharing information, how it could get used against you. And I'm sure there's plenty of stories you've heard that I've seen that where it does get used as someone gets a leg up and so forth. Any reflections here that would be useful to the audience? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I... I think I think my reflection is always concentrate on making sure that the people who are making the decision in that room when you're not there and your competitor is not there knows everything they need to know about you in terms of sharing I've seen I've seen mixtures Michael I've seen times when people have been incredibly cooperative with each other in terms of going up for partnership and that has been really helpful I have also seen and and by your question, you clearly have too, where people have undermined each other. I think that's sort of situation specific and and situ and specific in terms of who the individuals are. But I but the more general point is make sure those that are making the decision have all the information that they need about you and what you can offer. And and I think to your point earlier of having a strong network and sponsors around yeah. you who can speak up if they see misinformation being spread or who are influencing when, when you're not around. Uh, again, this goes to this point of actively managing your career, your whole chapter on impression management. I also want to ask you here, because there has been research in the past, and I see it ironically sometimes come up with some of my clients, where a barrier to a, a woman going up isn't always necessarily you know, the stereotypical man, it may actually be another woman. And the research here talks about the queen bee who maybe is from a different era who says, you know, you've got to do all the stuff that I did. And believe me, they had to do a lot to get there. Have you seen this come up or, or how would you be advising people to think about this? 
there's a number of strategies to think about. I mean, the first one I would I would pull out is is that Madeleine Albright quote, which is there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. I think that's that that's around. But yeah, I do see the the, the queen bee at times. I think in dealing with the queen bee directly, it's worth thinking about what's in it for them. Um, and being really explicit, what what are you adding to their team, to their business, to the things that they care about? But I would also pull out your point about the network. And what I find people really appreciate is drawing out the network. So if you start with a large piece of paper and you put yourself in the middle and then you start, okay, so there's the boss immediately above you who is perhaps not being helpful, but who sits around them and who do you know that sits around them? Now, there are some political difficulties if you want to just skip over the boss and go to their boss, but there are usually other people around who can help and whose advice you can ask and making sure that they know what it is that you contribute. Again, just the truth, but making sure they do know the truth can be incredibly helpful. Um, Just because that line is blocked, it doesn't mean that there aren't others that can help you. And if it is a woman that's blocking it, I am very saddened. I'm saddened, whoever it is, but I'm particularly saddened, perhaps, if it's a woman. Yeah. So having this, you call it out, you know, multiple sponsors, multiple people in your network, the the idea of kind of not keeping all your eggs necessarily in one basket, but again, mm. being attentive. It actually sounds all kind of exhausting <laughs> that you're having to do these things on top of your work. <laughs> do you get that? I do. I do get that. And the thing, I mean, I guess part of what I did in my book is to try and make it as simple as possible by making the exercises that if if I or you, Michael, were that person's coach, these are the kind of exercises we would do. And it's and it's not that you have to do it all in one go. That's the other thing. Is you, if you're starting to draw your network map, you maybe do it once and it takes three minutes. And then over the next week, you notice that there are other people actually that you know, and you just add them. Um, I'm a great fan of having, I don't, I think I have one in front of me now to show you, Michael, because you can see me, but uh, of having a notebook that is about achieving your potential. Um, Whilst obviously I think my book, your books are absolutely essential. I, I love to start off with a clean notebook for each coaching client and get them to write down what they find useful in the sessions. And gradually as they build up that book, and add to it and take away thoughts, it ends up being the best book for them ever written about developing a career because it's written by them. It's the bits that resonate with them. And I think whilst it sounds like, oh, this is an onerous thing to write out a, a network map, it isn't. And actually the conversations that you're already having with people, you're, I think all I'm asking you to do is to have more meaningful conversations with them or more conscious conversations with them. So it's not doing more, it's doing things smarter, Mm -hmm. doing doing, uh, conscious things that can help you. Being much more conscious than necessarily having more conversations. Yes, yes. Alison, we mentioned earlier this is very applicable beyond women. And I want to ask you, so the book specializes on women and professional service firms, but you also coach and you lead programs, you know, around the globe in Asia, Middle East, in the States. As you've coached women, there's this topic, right? Intersectionality, a woman who's also from a particular group, say Indian, East Asian, Black. Any specific differences or insights that you find that come up there that were worth calling out? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's both differences and similarities. I mean, very often the programs that I'm running are bringing women together from the same organization across the globe. Um, and we start off by noticing the differences. And then actually the commonalities come out again and again. And, and often in the feedback, 
because once we formed these these coaching groups they very often take on a life of their own and and those women support and challenge each other long after the program's finished and one of the things that they give as feedback is they were surprised at how common the issues were i'm not alone in this i thought i was going to be alone i'm not alone but actually there are also differences um and there are differences we talked earlier in in our conversation about about the impact of society and i think this is a time when society's stereotypes can come in and be incredibly unhelpful so whilst there's a similarity of again to take something we've talked about further earlier in this conversation between the sort of i i see women in all cultures doing that head down mouse working in a corner thing i think there is a cultural overlay on that so you get the stereotypes of from western culture of the angry black woman or the submissive asian woman and that overlays it and makes it even more difficult to step forward and say this is what i want this is what i'm doing how can you help me so it's both a commonality and a and a difference and actually getting people from different cultural backgrounds together talking about it can be really helpful because things that might be more difficult in one culture is less difficult in another and just seeing how it works particularly within the same organization can be very helpful and i would add here that particularly when it's accentuated or more difficult because of a context or someone's background actually makes many of the strategies that you're talking about maybe executed slightly differently sponsorship being agentic and calling things out even more important absolutely even more important. I, I, I also want to bring up this point. I mean, we could, we could be, there's so many questions I want to ask you, Alison, but this point, many of the groups that you lead are all women, but you also do mixed men and women leadership groups. And it, there's a lot of research, you know, all, all women colleges um, around the world, the benefits of that. But I'm noticing, and that clearly a lot of these things would help men. I also find that when men realize some of these things are going on, they are more attentive, whether that's to their peer or if they're in a position of authority, what's going on perhaps on their team that they're not aware of. Reflections on when you do a mixed group leading that versus an all women, anything that would be worthwhile highlighting? Very often at the beginning of programs, this is a challenge that I'm given and I'm very happy to have the challenge. You know, why is it all women here? What, you know, the world is 50% men, 50% women. My organization is more men than women. Why are we just women here? My response is always come and talk to me at the end of the program and see whether you still have that concern. Because my experience is that groups of all women get deeper faster and much more personal faster than somehow and i you know i'm not i have a masters in psychology but not a phd in this area so i'm not entirely sure why that is that it happens but um but that has been absolutely my experience one of the really interesting things oh actually i would step back i also think and this goes back to the involving the organizations because of course if we're all if we're involving the organizations too it isn't just women so there are the sponsors of those women who very often we would be working with too there are the sponsors of the program and very often what i'm asking is that after i've had the enormous privilege of spending time with their women i want to then talk to the board or the leaders and say this is what's happening on your watch um this is what's happening within your organization this isn't theoretical this is what i'm hearing obviously totally anonymized so that the women aren't identified mm-hmm. but i think that's really important and of course that does involve the the wider organization whatever gender but the point i was going to make is interestingly in the last oh in the last year i have something i've been pushing for for a while but i have actually been asked to do this is to come and talk to all male groups and say you know this is this is important for your organization for all kinds of business reasons 
you know, I, I hope everybody believes that there's a moral reason why mm -hmm. we should be promoting people on merit and we should be questioning why they're not rising in the same way uh, across the genders. But, you know, my background is business. My background is as an accountant. What's going on here and what can you do to help to make your, your organization more successful? And um, that was that was to start off with quite daunting because I was going to be the only woman in the room. And I was thinking, how, you know, how will this go down? Actually, very, very positively. And it wasn't what I was worried about, I guess, was was men saying, well, you know, actually, we've been in this privileged position. And if you're going to cut the cake in a different way, we're going to be we're going to be disadvantaged. But that didn't seem to be where the men were coming from. It seemed to be a, no, we want this to be a meritocracy. We, we want to get the best to the top. And what was really interesting is, is wanting really practical tools. So I'll give you an example, yeah. which for the women listening here, I think they will smile as I tell you this practical tool. Uh, for the men, it may come as a shock to some of them, and it did come as a shock to the people in the room, which is the research suggests, and, and my experience, and I suspect many, many women's experience, is that in a, in a large meeting, women will get talked over more than men will. Um, and that puts you in a really difficult position if you are talked over, because if you end up saying, excuse me, I, you know, I was saying something there, you get the the opprobrium comes out of your being strident or pushy or all of those words that are only used about women. Um, and I was talking to the men and saying, you know, this does happen. If you notice it, can you please, you know, help the person who's being talked over by saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Susan, I didn't catch what you were saying. There's a story that this happened in the Obama White House where a group of senior women found that they were being talked over not by Obama, I hesitate to say, I, I must say, but they found in big meetings they were being talked over. And so they, they grouped together and each one of them would support the other. So that if they were being talked over, then they would say, I'm sorry, Susan, I didn't hear what you said and help. What I was told by the guys in this room was that, oh, Alison, you don't understand our organization. That doesn't happen here. To which my response was, well, that's possible, but why don't you talk to your female peers and find out whether they think it happens here? Um, they came back the next week um, and said, amazing, it does. I've talked to my female peers. I've talked to my female friends. They all say it happens. And I think it's, it's they're not being willfully blind. It just possibly hasn't happened to them. And actually engaging the men in helpful ways rather than you are the problem because they're not the problem it's it's the organizations and society that is very often the problem but helping them see the things that they haven't experienced and so therefore don't see is really really helpful i think yeah that awareness of things we may be unconscious of is tremendous and so it's great to hear that you have been doing that and this interesting and very positive reception that, that you're getting. It wasn't positive at first. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't happen here, Alison. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen here. <laughs> right, exactly. And then you show them the survey, very anonymized, <laughs> et cetera. But I also want to call out here that this is great work that you do. And I think coaches, particularly external coaches, a role that they can serve as catalysts in creating, gets overused, right? Safe spaces to have that deep conversation, reality, what's going on, what we can do, but also the larger organization and, and stakeholders being aware of what is going on in a productive way. So Allison, we are, are, are running to our final questions here. And I just want to ask you, if you could go back and republish the book, and you can always still do that, right? If you added or changed one thing, uh, to it, what would it be? I think it would be that point I made earlier about saying, think about how you can do this leadership role. Think about the advantages of it. The, the people who are leaders in your organization are not in a hostage situation. They enjoy what they do. Find out what it is that they enjoy. You talked about the autonomy, the, the chance to lead a team. Um, all of those things are great. And think about how you can do that in a way that works for you 
and then discuss it. And it's that bravery to step forward. My my generation didn't. We we thought we were going to have to do partnership or leadership in a certain way, and we backed out if that wasn't the way that we wanted to do it. I think having been in and around professional service firms for as long as I have been, I think now is the best ever time to be a woman within those organizations. I think the door is much wider open in terms of how can you do it? What do you need to have from us in order to stay and progress your career? I want those women to to be brave and say what it is that they want and creative in terms of how they would structure it differently. Fantastic. And again, your book, Inside Knowledge, is an immensely practical guide. Many of these questions and exercises and key points, as well as more, that we have talked about here. Allison, uh, how do people best reach you or see your work? I'm very happy for people to contact me by email, which is at for Alison Templey at ad atd partners, which is uh, atdpartners.co.uk. Okay, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes so it's very clear yeah, as well, as long as well as the company website and you know your profile on LinkedIn. Alison, uh, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www dot C-H-A-N-G-W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.